0: Welcome to Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast inspired by the Puritan Practice of Godly Conference, or spiritual conversations among believers. These spiritual conversations offer practical spiritual help for Christian living. Welcome to Ordinary Fellowship. I'm Jeremy Lee, and with me is uh, Matthew McLaughlin. Hey, Jeremy. My co-host. He's not even waiting for me to get done. He's anxious today. Yeah, you know. <laughs> He's ready to fire because of the s b c
1: don't give away future episodes
0: <laughs> his boy Rick Warren, he's just so proud of him.
1: <laughs> well, that's one way to moniker. I don't think it's the one I would choose, but you know
0: no um i'm I'm very certain that Rick Warren is not Matthew's boy. This is a much <laughs> more
1: accurate statement than the previous
0: one, so but we'll leave Rick Warren in the s b c convention. For later episodes, we're not. You never know.
1: (laughs) Stay tuned and you'll find out.
0: Yeah. So today we're here to talk about something more important. Probably something most people don't even think about. But uh, we're going to talk about Christian worldviews. And the question we're going to ask is, should you have a Christian worldview? Now, most of you will probably say, well, of course. But my answer is going to be, depends on what you mean by worldview. So, we're actually going to look at uh, worldview theory and analyze whether this is really a good way of thinking through issues and, and all that kind of stuff. So, a lot of people are unaware that worldview theory actually is not didn't come from Christianity. Um, it's relatively new. It actually came from Enlightenment philosophy, German idealism, in the 19th century. Christianity picked up on some of these things. So the fact that it came from German idealism ought to give us pause and say, wait a minute, (laughs) should we really be drinking from this well? German idealism, it really isn't good, and it's not kind of (laughs) anti-Christian. So we should be now that doesn't mean automatically that you blow it off as you'll see hopefully throughout the episode that as we discuss this i'm not saying uh, that would be a fallacious argument to say well it came from german idealism therefore it's bad even german idealists get some things right so we can't just reject it because of the origin that's a logical fallacy called origin fallacy but it should make us stop and think, is this really where we want to go as Christians? Is this the kind of idea we want to follow? A lot of my understanding of uh, worldview theory came from uh, J.V. Fasco's book, Reforming Apologetics. I've listened to some other things as well, and that will come into play as we move along, but his, he has a chapter on it and it's very helpful. So first, before I get into the problems, let me describe what a worldview is. This is according to Abraham Kuyper and I, I think Abraham Kuyper gives a bad idea of what a worldview is. A worldview offers a comprehensive explanation of humanity's relationship to God, their fellow humans, and the world to such an extent that no department of human knowledge goes untouched. This is the kind of idea about worldview thinking that I think Christians need to watch out for. Now, most people, I think, use worldview in a more loose kind of way of speaking For example, N.T. Wright characterizes a worldview, and I'm quoting from J.V. Fesco. N.T. Wright characterized a worldview as the way in which people view reality, with worldviews typically providing answers to life's key questions. Who are we? Where are we? What is wrong with the world? And what is the solution? And there are others that use a more loose... So I'm I'm not suggesting that we necessarily throughout the term worldview it's not that the worldview in and of itself that word is bad I think we need to more carefully define what what we're talking about and and the kind of thing that N.T. Wright is suggesting is 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 good and helpful and um, is a good way to think about those things but generally speaking what I'm trying to push back against is the kind of thing that Abraham Kuyper is suggesting. Fesco lists four ideas that characterize historic worldview thinking. So I'll just list them. Number one, the rejection of a common doctrine of humanity. Number two, a single principle for which one deduces a worldview. Number three, and three and four are the ones we're going to focus on, Three, an exhaustive systematic Explanation of reality Remember Kuiper said there's no area Of thought that goes untouched He, It's comprehensive We'll get back to that And then number four The incommensurability Of competing worldviews In other words um, Other worldviews are Contrary to the Christian worldview Completely contrary And the word that guys who I think are on the wrong side of this use is antithesis. So that there's no there's no way to bring these worldviews together. They are in complete opposition. There's not common ground uh, between them. That's what the fourth idea is suggesting. So let's let's review real quick, if not for your sake, for my own <laughs> What I'm arguing is a loosely used idea of worldview that basically helps us to understand reality is, is one thing. But the claims that a worldview or the Christian theology or the Bible gives a complete exhaustive worldview so that every area of knowledge goes untouched um, that's what I'm pushing back against, okay? And the reason is because I think this this goes beyond Scripture. I think the other two ideas go beyond Scripture, but I'm not educated enough in them to, to comment too much on them. But these last two ideas that uh, Christianity provides a world an exhaustive worldview and that that worldview is in absolute opposition to every other worldview, I, I think these are serious errors uh, that because they go beyond what the Bible writes. So those are the two that I'm going to focus on for my critique of worldview thinking. And hopefully we'll have enough time that I can give some positive recommendations. So does all that make sense so far? Anything you want to add or any questions for me, Matthew, to clarify?
1: No, no, it makes sense. I think the two questions you want to talk about are the two that I think we have to work through because they're the more practical, applicational questions, And but at the same time, the other piece that we won't talk about that much, but just to put it out there, is you still need to have, like you said, N.T. Wright's definition, that loose. It's, it's a necessity. The problem is how far you take the question.
0: Right. And, it, and this is what it comes down to, okay? What does the sufficiency of the Bible mean? Right. Okay. There are some people who reject sufficiency. We're not rejecting the sufficiency of Scripture. We we hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. But then there are people that, and, and the people that hold to this kind of thinking about the worldview, that it gives a complete exhaustive knowledge of every area of knowledge, that the Bible does that, I think are going beyond what the Bible, what the confessions, what... Uh, Christians have believed throughout the centuries before 19th century German idealism have believed. So I think we're, we're going beyond, we're going farther, further than what the Bible permits. Right. So I guess... So it really is coming down to a, what does sufficiency mean?
1: Right. I, I guess the way I would define it is, and you tell me if you think this is wrong, the way I would define it is the Bible gives a complete, but it doesn't do exhaustive. So in other words, it answers the questions. It, it, there's nothing that it doesn't in some manner speak to, even if it's in generalities or in broad strokes, but it doesn't give an exhaustive. So in other words, people who try to say that you're supposed to derive traffic laws from, your, from the Bible, you're not going to get an exhaustive answer on how right. to drive. They're not
0: detailed. Right. But you get a general principle. You right. Know? The general principle is you shall not kill. Right. So, and, and and the opposite of that is to preserve life, right? So the traffic laws are just ought to be designed to preserve life. Now, does that mean the s- speed limit should be thirty-five, thirty, or twenty-five? Exactly. <laughs> that's that. that right. That's the. The Bible doesn't answer those kind of de- detailed questions. Then the other question is. What
1: ought the punishment to be if someone doesn't obey that law? Right. And so that would be an example of the difference between complete and exhaustive. Right. Well, so that's what I'm trying – I think that's what we're trying to draw the right. distinctions. Right. And th- so the
0: Bible gives general principles that apply to all all of our lives, right? Right. But the problem is, is that some people want to get too detailed. And then there are even people who have tried to de- derive – Math from the Bible, right, and other kinds of things from the Bible um, that the Bible was never intended to do, right. So let me let me quote from the London Baptist Confession. The very first sentence of the Confession says this: "The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith." And obedience. So here, sufficiency is limited to knowledge about faith, saving knowledge, saving faith, and saving obedience. In other words, there's knowledge outside of what the Bible talks about. And the confession goes on to describe how God has revealed himself in nature as well. So uh, not only that he exists in some of his attributes, but nature also reveals a natural law, a lo- that there's a law of God, a moral law. One of the things we have to be aware of is we can't interpret the sufficiency of scripture to mean that the Bible alone has says everything we need to know about everything. Because the confession itself says that some things are also revealed by nature. So however we interpret the sufficiency of Scripture, we have to leave room for that. So we have to be careful in how we define it, because the Bible never claims to be a sufficient source of all knowledge. And I think that's where some of the worldview thinking ends up going, the the bad kind of worldview thinking is that the Bible is the source of all knowledge. It, it frankly isn't. Um, you're not going to find math. You'll find math in the Bible, but you're not, going to find, you're not going to be able to figure out how to do math from the Bible. That's outside what the Bible teaches and says. And to be more clear, Baptist Catechism says that the Bible primarily teaches what man is to believe about God, and what man's duties are. So that the thrust of the Bible is to teach us, like the London Confession says, saving knowledge, saving faith, and saving obedience. Okay? And it's to teach us about who God is and what our duties towards him are. That really is the limit of sufficiency. Any thoughts, questions there? Does
1: that make sense? It makes sense. I think... We we did that episode a while ago on natural theology, and I think that would be—if if you have more questions, you can go back and listen to that. Right. But, but I also think—I think the problem that people get into is they try to assume that special revelation— supersedes general revelation like general revelation is is there but special revelation is more and so it's more powerful and so they try to box everything into special and not acknowledge that god reveals stuff by general which is or common grace or however the language we want to use so that we're not trying to say the sufficiency isn't saying that god doesn't speak to it it's just he doesn't speak to it in his word he speaks to it through the laws he creates through nature through how the order that he those created order that he's created the mandate that's how he speaks to it not through thus says the Lord and how I want to read you a verse
0: right and, and and that's an important thing to say it's but a lot of these folks who hold the what I view as the bad view of world worldview theory a lot of them um, don't believe in natural theology, natural law, right. or things like that. So they reject that as a category entirely because they think it undermines the sufficiency of Scripture, right. which it would undermine their view of the sufficiency of Scripture, but I don't think it undermines the historical confessional view of the sufficiency of Scripture from, from the London Baptist Confession and, and all those. So... Um, so one example I think that will be helpful. what we're saying is the Bible doesn't give all the answers about politics okay and and this is a real this is something that's currently going on, and it goes around the debate about sufficiency is is the whole issue about abortion right there are there are two groups who are opposed to abortion uh within. Christianity within the SBC, one group is uh, the traditional right to life movement, and then you have another movement called uh, abolitionism. Abolitionism, (laughs) they're one of the ones that hold what I think is a bad view of the worldview theory most of the time. There's an argument between these groups about whether or not the woman seeking an abortion should be subject to criminal uh, sanctions, okay? I'm not going to get into the debate about who's right or wrong about this. I think it's a discussion that's worth having, okay? Whatever your opinion on it is, is fine. But the problem is, is that one side wants to claim that this is the biblical way, that the Bible teaches us that we must act this way, I'm sorry, but it doesn't, and and this is where it goes beyond. It goes beyond sufficiency. The Bible doesn't give us an answer about the best strategy for ending abortion in the United States. Yes, it gives. It teaches us. The Bible definitely teaches us that murder is wrong. And there's other implications in Scripture that uh, there's other passages that deal with. Um, the killing of an unborn child, things like that, that ought to be taken into account. But the Bible doesn't really answer the how. what is the best strategy. Should we incrementally try to save as many lives as possible until we get to the point where we're over to overturn Roe v. Wade? Or must we insist all or nothing that it's either end abortion or nothing? The Bible doesn't answer those questions. Those are strategic things that we need to consider and think through and and deal with. But I don't see where the Bible gives us an answer one way or the other in this. So to to argue that um, abolitionism is the biblical way and incrementalism is somehow um, is somehow undermining. The biblical way, the Christian worldview, things like that, it is wrong. It it just it's not there, and it's going beyond what the Scripture says. So, that that to me, um, that to me is the first problem. The Bible doesn't give us comprehensive worldview. It doesn't tell us every detail of everything we need to know. So, oh, and we'll, unless you have any follow up on that let's move on to the next point so the next issue is that competing worldviews are completely antithetical to the christian worldview right what what this what ends up happening then is then there's a unique christian way to do everything so there's a christian understanding of politics and then there's everybody else pagans there's, there's a unique Christian way of teaching math, of teaching science, of there's a unique Christ, Christian way of dealing with art. Because cr- the Christian worldview is antithetical to any other worldviews. It, can't, it cannot be mixed with them. I think we can see <laughs> this isn't true because we see people who aren't believers we we do we do math the same way as an unbeliever now as christians because we understand who god is we may have a more comprehensive understanding of the meaning and the purpose of math but we're not going to do math in a different way there's no unique christian way to do math and what happens if if we view it this way is that we have to reject any idea that doesn't come from a Christian. One example of this, uh, Ron Nash uh, used to be a teacher at Reformed Theological Seminary and sometimes at Southern Baptist Seminary. Um, he's dead now, but his, his some of his lectures are available online. Uh, biblical training has him. He, he's, he's easy, fun to listen to, and... Uh, Uh, He teaches philosophy, apologetics, and things like that. He did a series on worldview, and he was talking about economics. And he was talking about how some people who hold this type of worldview thinking that I'm pushing back against would get on him because he wasn't finding his economic views in the Bible. He was getting them from the um, Swiss economic school. Mises and I can't remember the other guy's name, but you know these libertarian guys who weren't necessarily Christians. And he says, he says, why do I need to go? To, I find this. I find the same thing in the Bible. Why don't? Why can't I just read Mises? <laughs> so he. It, but this is this is what it ends up happening, is that you you can't read outside the Christian realm. You can read it to critique it, but it is in it's not valuable to you because it's not it's not part of the uniquely Christian worldview. It's antithetical to the Christian worldview. And anything they have is positive, they actually stole it from Christian worldview, is is the way the line goes. Instead of believing in God's common grace and and that God gives knowledge to all about these common things gives his saving knowledge, saving faith and saving obedience through the scriptures. So we, there's not a uniquely Christian way of doing economics. Now, the Bible certainly gives some broad principles on economics. I mean, it, the Bible encourages frugality. It b- teaches the right to private property. It teaches that if you refuse to work, you shouldn't be able, you shouldn't eat. Um so there, there's basic principles in the Bible, but there's not a worked-out worldview in the Bible about which economic system is the best system. I should have mentioned this in the other portion, but this goes with politics too, right? If Christianity is antithetical to any other worldview, that means that Christi- then Christianity would have to be opposed to, to the American Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution unless they were explicitly come from the Bible which while Christianity had influence it didn't it didn't come from the Bible so we shouldn't imagine that the constitutional convention these men were standing around with their bibles looking at that to determine what the constitution should say they were more likely to have copies of John Locke and Guys like that in their hands than than the scriptures. I better stop here because I feel like I'm rambling and not making sense.
1: it makes sense. I think so the idea would be that fundamentally you the concept that there's a framework that is Christian and therefore every other framework has to in its entirety be rejected. If we're honest doesn't make any logical sense on the face of it, but that's what the other side will try to say, and what we 're saying is is that we can there is truth to be derived from the other frameworks, from the other worldviews that and that also that scripture will, would speak generally to the whatever principle, but you're not going to find the minutiae that the other side tries to say that, that you're going to get all the details, it's going to be all worked out, and therefore there's a Christian way to do politics. There's not a Christian way to do politics, It's not a Christian way to do economics, but there are, as you already said, there are Christian ideas that speak to politics, that speak to economics, that we can derive from, but we're going to have to then intermingle those ideas... With common grace and the gift that God has given men and women the ability to think and to work things out in rational, logical form. And that creates a more well-rounded system to explain the exhaustive nature of all knowledge.
0: Right, and I think one of the problems that happens with this kind of worldview thinking is it it really ends up being divisive because anyone who disagrees with you isn't disagreeing with the wisdom that you've tried to work through and come to this wise conclusion. They're arguing with the Word of God, There are, and that creates more division than is even necessary.
1: So, in the couple minutes we've got left, what are some positives?
0: I think... Rather than this kind of worldview thinking, we need to have the way of wisdom. Well, back to that from right. our decision-making episode. Christians from the very beginning have always uh, sought to understand the world alongside unbelievers who are trying to understand the world. Paul, twice in the Bible, quotes from quotes from pagan poets positively. He's not... <laughs> He's not critiquing them. He's positively stating them, they got this right. They were right about this. And then uses it to show that Christianity is true. So it's a common area that they agree on from which they he can use evangelistically. Christians from early on have read Plato and Aristotle and the Neoplatonists, and these this kind of Greek metaphysics was very important in defining and defending trinitarian orthodoxy, Christology. You know, you you can't really understand the early creeds and the early creeds of Christianity if you don't understand some of the Greek metaphysical ideas that were they were dealing with through the idea, through that. It's commonly thought that Augustine synthesized Plato and that may be true. Thomas Aquinas synthesized Aristotle. But I think a better way of looking at it is that Augustine and Aquinas fixed. They took what was true from these Platonist philosophers. The point is it's that they, they fixed the errors. They took what is true. They fixed the errors. This continues throughout uh, the Reformation and really was standard for Christianity until you get to the 19th century, beginning with David Hume and Immanuel Kant, these philosophers, which led to the Enlightenment and and to this German idealism and worldview thinking. Uh, Before that... Christian recognized that wherever truth was found, it was God's truth, and they could appreciate it and value it as God's truth, rather than saying, well, it came from pagan philosophy, therefore we reject it wholesale. It's antithetical to Christian faith and is of no use to us whatsoever. Instead, they found truth in many different places, and and nobody, no Christian has ever read these pagan philosophers uncritically. It's always with a critical eye. We know what the Bible says, we know what Christian teaching is, and they're finding things uh, that are in agreement because God revealed himself in nature, both his existence and some of his attributes and the moral law of God. So some, some of these guys got things right. That's why I said at the beginning, I'm not rejecting worldview theory just because it comes from German idealism. They, German idealists probably got some things right that are valuable that would be useful for us. They, they came to understand some true things about our world. We shouldn't reject those just because they come from German idealism, and we shouldn't reject worldview thinking j- simply because it comes from German idealism. What I'm saying is a more ecla- eclectic approach, and I think this is important because, let's get back to government. I was going to say this earlier, but it's fitting here, okay? According to the Bible, Matthew, what what is the best form of government? What is the biblical form of government? <laughs>
1: oh, goody, one of the
0: fun questions. I don't really know that there's an answer. Now, those who hold to this worldview <laughs> th- thinking will probably have an answer of this is this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Some of these guys are pushing for uh, the United States to become a Christian nation. Again, I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily a bad thing. My pushback is, is that, is this, is this what the Bible teaches, right? Is this the only way of doing it according to the Bible? And, and, so... Some people who hold this kind of worldview thinking are actually pushing against religious freedom now. Uh, and w- I'm, I'm seeing people talking about religious freedom being a bad, negative thing, and that Christians shouldn't support religious freedom. But if you look back in history, and one of the ways that God reveals himself is through his providential working through history. If you look back through history and see what happens when the church and state become one, you will see that it's not usually a good thing. Maybe temporarily, maybe for a little while. But if you look at the history of Europe, it's a history of war. Because, you know, we, we fight about um, gas prices and taxes and those kind of things. Imagine if you had to fight the government because they were going the wrong way on uh, on baptism. <laughs> so you think it's fun dealing with the government on 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 taxes and gas prices? Imagine having to petition your senator or congressman to change their view on baptism. And then they punish people who don't follow the right procedure on baptism. It leads to war. If, if you use the approach that I'm suggesting, you can consider the wisdom that we've gained through, through God's prov- providential working in the past. I don't think that's a good way to go. I think the better way... Now, are there problems with religious freedom? Yes. There are issues that happen. But I don't think those are insurmountable. I'm more concerned about war. I'm afraid that people who hold to this historical worldview-type thinking, how, how can they analyze it? Because if the Bible says this is the way to go, and history shows it's a bad way, are we going to believe history, or are we going to believe the Bible? Is the Bible sufficient, or does it need to be updated by history? And I think that's the dilemma that people will find themselves in if they follow, end up following this historic worldview theory is that they'll they'll end up not just with politics, but in other areas as well. That God's given them like history, his providential working through history, but we can't recognize that because we've we've went beyond over and beyond what the Bible says about sufficiency. And then we've painted every other worldview as being anti Christian. And and so then then we're limited to One revelation of God rather than his entire revelation, which includes both general revelation and special revelation. Does that make sense, Matthew? It does. All right. I think on that note, we can end. And if you have hate mail, Matthew will give you the address to
1: send it to. (laughs) So as we close, our encouragement to you is find answers in Scripture to the questions that. Scripture provides answer to, and then rely upon God's common grace and his general revelation to answer the other questions, but ultimately knowing that all truth comes from God, and so he's given us the ability to to determine what is truth. We thank you for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast ministry of Two Rivers Community Church. For more information about Two Rivers, you can find it on our website at www.tworiverscc.org. We look forward to your questions, your comments, and even that dreaded hate mail at ordinaryfellowship at gmail.com. Please follow us on Facebook at Ordinary Fellowship and like, subscribe, and rate this podcast on whatever service you listen to us on. But for now, we want to thank you once again for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship where we strive to have spiritual conversations for practical Christian living.